Bad news. Bad news for the state. Bad news for capital. Bad news for patriarchy. Bad news for all forms of domination. Bad news. Angry voices from around the world. Our monthly info show from anarchist and anti-authoritarian radio projects worldwide. If these news are bad, I don't want to be good. Welcome to the 69th edition of Bad News, Angry Voices from Around the World, which is a monthly news program produced by International Network of Anarchists and Anti-Authoritarian Radios. This month we have contributions from three radio projects. On the fifth moment of our show, Cherna Lumnia from Ljubljana has been speaking with a comrade who is currently based in Chiapas and is engaged in different efforts in solidarity with the Zapatista struggle. The conversation starts with news about the recent paramilitary attack on Zapatista community, Moises and Gandhi, and then continue with more background about the paramilitary force involved and about the recent dynamics in Chiapas. Poklicali ste črno luknjo in njeno kontrainformativno mrežo. Popisku odajte svoj glas. We have on the line a comrade that is now uh, based in Chiapas, Mexico. Thank you for taking um, your time to make this uh, conversation with us. Let's start with some uh, basic information uh, about what you do in Chiapas. Uh, if we understand correctly, you are engaged in different forms of practical solidarity with the struggle of the Zapatista communities. Can you be more specific about uh, what is it that you do? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm working in a media collective. We're doing um, audiovisual formation. Um, and we started in 1998 um, when there were like more open state repression on the Zapatista communities. And there, yeah, my collective came in and brought cameras, like video cameras. And yeah, started to give formation so that all the repression could be captured and could be, yeah, shown to the world. And from 2014 on, there, yeah, the Tercios Compass, the media compass from the Zapatistas were founded, and so the it wasn't necessary anymore that we would give formation if the ASETLN would do it by themselves. And so now we are more... Um, working with other struggles here in Chiapas, um, for example, the defense of territory and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, we're, we're here, and if like, communities need some help with 
with movie stuff and yeah media we we are here to help <laughs> and also we we did cover the media in the last caravan that was the south resist and yeah that was our latest thing we did Okay. Um, now let's turn to the recent warring events in Chiapas. A few days ago, an urgent news reached us about an attack of paramilitary forces against one of the Zapatista autonomous communities. Can you say more about what exactly happened? How serious was the attack? And are these kind of attacks against Zapatista communities common? Yeah. Okay. On May 22nd, um, there was the last attack on the community Moises and Gandhi, which is part of the autonomous municipality Lucio Cabañas, which is part of the 10th Caracol, Patria Nueva. And, um, yeah, first from one side of the village, they started to shoot members of the Orcao at around 4 p.m. And at 8 p.m. from the other side of the village, another part of Orcao was starting to fire as well. And, yeah, in this fire, um, the compa Jorge Lopez Santis was shot in the chest, and first he was denied medical service, but after uh, urgent action by human rights centers, um, yeah, they got the... They... Yeah, they got that he went to hospital and took Gutierrez, which is the capital of Chiapas, where he still has an adequate medical care, but, yeah, his situation is, as far as I know, he's, he's still living, and, yeah. And sadly, it's not not a only case. There's also aggressions on the community in Nuevo San Gregorio, which is also part of Caracolies. One year ago, uh, there was also the displacement of uh, the community Emiliano Zapata and the community um, and another community where, yeah, you see that the violence against um, communities from the ZLN is, is still happening. Okay. Uh, you mentioned Orcao. Um, Orcao is, uh, if we understand correctly, a paramilitary uh, force that is behind uh, also this latest attack. Uh, can you say more about what Orcao is? Um, what is uh, uh, the agenda that they have, the methods that they use, who are they uh, fighting for, uh, and what is uh, the relation of Orcao with the Mexican state? Yeah, so I think for explaining what Orcao is, I, I will go back in history. And yeah, they, the the translation of Orcao is Regional Organization of Coffee, Coffee Growers. So it was founded in 1988 and firstly had the function of, um, yeah, fighting for fair coffee pricing so that the coffee planters could have like a good life, which is a good thing. I think, but with the time, in the late 90s, Orcao started to um, work with the state and get state funds and positions in power in the government and things like that in change for doing favors for the government. And from then on, attacks started in 2002. They 
attacked the poblado Javier Lopez and burned the crops of the Zapatistas that are yeah growing their food there. And it went on in 2009. There was the attempt of displacing people from Bosque Bonito, which is another community, and also the attempt to attack the Caracol Morelia. Um, while there was an international encounter in in San Cristobal. Also in 2011, they attacked Poblado El Paraíso, destructed 4,500 coffee plants, and there were armed attacks on support bases of the ZLN. And, yeah, in the following years, it went on like that. There's a large register of the attacks against Zapatista communities. And... Yeah, sadly, also this attack on Moises Gandhi is not a new thing. They started in 2019 to to do armed attacks on this on this community, and yeah, I, there's a total impunity of this organization and their attacks and their violence. So I think there you you can see like the first first connection it has with the state and also that um, a research of the EZLNA brought to light that the money the state was sending for a school was used in arms of big, big impact. And yeah, maybe, maybe for showing a little bit more how the connection between the state and, and Orcao is, um, I think it's good to, to look in, into the yeah, program of counterinsurgency that's still going on. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and there's like the open attacks by military and the open repression after the the San Andres, Los Acuerdos San Andres. This open violence changed more to a low intensity war, and yeah, parts of that are the paramilitary like Orcao or Los Chicholines or other military uh, paramilitary mm-hmm. groups. And displacements, which we see in Chiapas a lot, there's like 17 million, no, 70,000 uh, displaced persons in Chiapas. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, also selective or massive assassinations is sadly a thing that's seen oftenly. And all of this fits very good into an analysis many critical persons have in Mexico, which is that state, um, economic forces, like capitalist big uh, mm-hmm. firms, and also the organized crime are like doing a thing, the three of them. And yeah, so for example, big landowners really often are the government forces and have their own friends with the organized crime. So there's a really, really uh, powerful connection between these and, yeah, really many, much corruption. And, yeah, so often, like, when there's a capitalist interest, they... They say to the governors, oh, yeah, we can give you money for implementing our project in this part. And if the people say no, the or 
organized crime or the paramilitary will hit there, and afterwards, um, yeah, the capitalist interests can mm-hmm. enter there. And so I, I think this connection is like a really visible thing. Okay. Um, and then how does the AZLN and the Zapatista communities uh, deal with this kind of uh, attacks and other forms of pressure? Yeah, so um, in the last few years, I didn't hear much about how they answered to these attacks. But a little while longer ago, there was, for example, in La Garucha, which is like another caracol, there were attacks and the ZLN sent men that were not armed with, with firearms, but just with sticks, but it was really, really many uh, military forces of the ZLN and they, they went to this, um, to this community that, that was attacked and there, um, yeah, the people with, that were armed with firearms, the aggressors uh, tried to attack, but they went to them and said, so you can try to kill every each one, every one of us, but we're, we're really many people. So, yeah, in the end, they, they gave their, their arms, they, they went away because there was too much, too much um, presence of the SLN. Mm. And... Yeah, the Zapatista communities, there are also other strategies, like from the civil arm. Um, so, for example, if there's like a land in dispute that other groups want to enter, sometimes the EZLN or members of the EZLN go there and plant and have the, their presence there, and so the, the aggressors don't, don't enter. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe let's now move a little bit um, sideways and speak more about the general dynamics uh, in Chiapas in last period. Yeah, that's like a really, really hard thing. Like the the last six years, more or less, um, the violence in, in, in Chiapas increased a, a lot. That was for one part, I think, because of the elections and because the change of power always brings uh, violence with it um, here. <laughs> and, um, yeah, also in the last years, there is an open dispute between two cartels, like the Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación, which is one really big power, and the Cartel Sinaloa. Chiapas is like um, the most southern state of, of Mexico. It is the border with Guatemala, and so this um, this plaza, this um, region is very important to traffic drugs, and so yeah, the, these cartels are trying to get the control over it, and with that, a lot of violence is happening. Also, there are um, territorial conflicts between communities, and so yeah, there are armed groups that are willing to give everything to kill for having territory. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's it's really crazy around here. Like, nearly every day you can hear about assassinations, about armed conflicts, about, um, 
Yeah, about uh, a lot of violence. So sadly, the the attacks on on the asset island and not are the only thing that's happening. Mm-hmm. There's a uh, much more of violence going on. Okay. Um, after journey for life, there was practically no official declaration from Ezeta Elen, except a short statement about the war in Ukraine, and that was already in March 2022, so more than one year ago. At the same time, some sources that are linked to the Zapatistas and their supporters of their struggle, such as Schools for Chiapas website, they openly warn that Chiapas is on the brink of, um, how they put it, civil war. Um, can you maybe comment uh, both on the silence uh, around of EZLN uh, in the context of high tensions and um, yeah on the civil war uh, concept itself? Yeah, so I think for for one part, the silence of the EZLN is a thing that already happened in the history. So, for example. A really a thing that came up two months ago is the case of Manuel Gomez Vasquez, which is a base of support of the Ezeta Elena, mm-hmm. who was taken prisoner uh, two and a half years ago. And just now, two, two months ago, the Ezeta Elena is the, made their research and they finished it, and so they did it, it, the case openly. They mention it to civil and not not to civil to human rights organizations and yeah i think um also um for example in 2000 uh, before the SETL went to mexico city there was like a period of three years that they didn't went publicly and i think that's like a a thing that they take their decisions and take their time to make good decisions mm-hmm. and also yeah also that was what what compañeros in the journey for life uh, were telling were telling us so that they took 11 years to plan their insurgency and these uh this is a big thing to plan, mm-hmm. but also other things. I, I think they take their time to, to do the right decision. And, yeah, maybe in some time there will be big changes, or maybe it's going to take a little bit longer and they're gonna, not going to be that big, but I think something's going to happen. And if uh, it uh, certainly knows when they want to let us know. <laughs> okay, um... And about the civil war? Ah, yeah, the the civil war. I think it's, um, it wasn't the comunicado they, they did about the um, sequestration, the kidnapping of uh, the two buses de, de apoyo in, while, uh, while there was the journey for life. Mm-hmm. And I think they, they, they related it to this general... Uh, normalization of violence in Chiapas and that it's like a really delicate situation. Okay. Um, that would be my understanding of the statement of the brink of civil war. Yeah. We also remember, yes, that uh, during journey of, of, for life, uh, yeah, they mm, stressed a lot the 
challenges ahead and the difficult situation oh. that uh, for sure is awaiting them on their return. Um, I believe that uh, we have slowly uh, running out of time. Uh, so I would ask you uh, for the conclusion uh, just one uh, um, let's say classic uh, question. Uh, it's about what uh, can the supporters of the Zapatista struggle uh, from around the world do uh, uh, both about this uh, latest uh, particular incidents of violence and of course in general. Um, this and of course if you would like to uh, add something uh, that hasn't been mentioned before, please uh, feel free to do so. Yeah. Um, so I think, sadly, directly here, there can't be done much because the people in power have the arms. And what what we can do is show our solidarity because like international solidarity often can prevent other things to happen and also can do much pressure. So um, I think for one part, there's uh, yesterday, the, there was published a national and interna international statement against the, the attacks against the um, Zapatista communities. And also there's a convocation for the 8th of June for an international day against the aggressions against the Zapatista communities and I think that's that's basically what we what people around the world can do show that they see what's happening and show that the state can't can't do this without yeah without people noting mm. all over the world thank you for the time that you took greetings from northwestern Balkans to the southeast of Mexico Bye bye. Yeah. Bye bye. What's the revolution to you? <laughs> to kill your bosses and take their money. <laughs> Uh, uh, hey, 
mapuche Criado en la guarrilla Obligado a olvidar el elfuna, la fe y la maguilla Sin memoria del cielo, sin amor Azul lleno de recuerdos, cemento que solo sirven para dar luz Ya no recuerdo a su pasado, su vida ni su lengua El batido de tregua que no te entrego a su piel morena Un color reforzado que nos apeta Ya no hay trail y longo, es otra nuestra vestimenta Doblemente discriminado, primero por ser indio On our second block a Radio Berlin brings us news from the territory dominated by the state of Turkey. On 28 of May, demonstrations of Erdogan fans, including Turkish fascists, celebrate his narrow victory at the presidential elections. We were not very happy that he would still be in power in Turkey. A Radio Berlin talked with a comrade about the situation in the country, what follows after this election, what would have been the alternative, and what this all means for suppressed communities and revolutionaries. Hey comrade, how are you doing? What are your thoughts and what are your feelings in the aftermath of recent Turkish election? Hi, thanks for asking. Um, I wish I was able to say that I'm feeling great about it, but unfortunately that's not the case. It's quite devastating news. When I first saw the outcome, the final outcome, I felt really devastated. It took me almost a day to get out of that feeling because I still have family in Turkey and being in Germany did not change anything in my feelings. It didn't feel safer because you belong to a culture, you belong to your family, you belong to the mentality there. It's not something you can just rip yourself off. And right now my thoughts are all over the place. I'm trying to stay hopeful, but we have to redefine what hope is. So I think for now I'm just in the process of teaching myself how to become hopeful about this new era we are in. What would it have meant if the other candidate from the Stichwahl would have won? Would he actually have been a better alternative? In my personal opinion, we should have boycotted the elections because it wasn't taking place in equal circumstances. The campaigns were not equal. The money that was invested in it was not equal. There was violence. There was manipulation. There was disinformation, edited videos in demonstrations and gatherings that were doing like black propaganda against the oppositional candidate. So in my personal point of view, there had to be like a major boycotting protest. This could have then opened a new room for new discussions. But my personal opinion does not matter so much in that. So in the case, in the scenario where the oppositional candidate had won, we could have taken a bit of space and a bit of moment to just breathe. And that would have made a lot of difference. But I don't believe there could have been really major changes because... In the alliance uh, law, like when you go into elections in two alliances, because it wasn't like party-based, it was alliances-based, there is this rule that the electoral threshold is not applicable for parties. So this led lots of right-wing extremist parties going to the parliament. So even if the oppositional candidate had won, the parliamentary power wouldn't be on his behalf. And right now, the parliament looks very dark, very right-wing and very nationalist and 
I'm not sure how a social democratic candidate would have dealt with that. Yeah, okay, as a president, he would have the final word, but getting consensus and making everybody satisfied and not giving the word to their mouth to criticize you back and to somehow put new obstacles on your way, it would have been really difficult. And I also don't believe in the social democratic ideology being really powerful and making radical changes in the society. And that's what is needed in Turkey. So it's more about complying with majority. That's Turkish politics. That's politics everywhere. And because of this compliance, there has been so much suffering because it took freedoms out of the picture and just to comply with the nationalistic majority, the Kurdish people had to suffer a lot. Feminists had to suffer a lot. LGBTQI had to suffer a lot. And everyone that was not a part of this massive majority had to suffer a lot. So it meant quite a lot of injustice. And I believe the social democratic candidate wouldn't have been able to make really big radical changes in the society because then he would spook all his nationalist supporters in the alliance. What happened directly after Erdogan's election? How did he and how did his supporters react in and outside of Turkey? This is a good question with really uh, saddening answers. So first reactions were even the final outcome was released. There were people celebrating in the streets and they were just shooting arbitrarily. That's the thing in Turkey when they are overexcited, they just turn to their guns and they shoot in the air. But this indiscriminate uh, shootings, they killed a couple of people and two of them were just children. One of them was four years old and there were stabbings as well. These things are very shameful to talk about. How come a celebration over an election can cause lives? But that's the daily reality in Turkey. And this is because of the polarization for all these decades. Everybody looks at each other as potential enemies. And we have lost like almost five, maybe more lives in the first night. And the first thing Erdogan did, there's this thing that is called the balcony speech. It sounds quite fascistic. It's, you know, like it looks so similar to the Nazi pictures or Mussolini's picture being on the balcony and giving their speech. So he jumped on the balcony and the first things he said were targeting the LGBTQ communities in Turkey. He said, oh, those in the opposition, you know who they are? They are the LGBTQI supporters. I mean, he didn't say LGBTQI, he just said LGBT. Because in his eyes, uh, LGBTQI people are a part of a project and they are like US made. There's this like huge conspiracy theory that is being used as a populist propaganda. And he was saying, these people are targeting Turkish family and there is no room for them in his ruling. So this was the first thing he said. And then the honorary leader, I would call him Selahattin Demirtas of the Kurdish movement. He's been in prison for almost a decade now, like seven years, if I'm not wrong. And they were campaigning, uh, AKP was campaigning that if the opposition candidate wins, they are going to free Selahattin Demirtas. And they are using this argument, they are using this paradigm of criminalizing the Kurdish people in every chance possible. So this was their campaign. If they win, they are going to free all the terrorists. So you are a terrorist if you are not siding with them. And this was a huge deal. So the second thing he said that he is never going to release him. He is never going to release Selahattin Demirtas. 
And the second he said that, the crowd, this this like fanatics, they started chanting, hang him. And this was horrifying. This gave us goosebumps. And this picture cannot belong, cannot belong to a country that calls itself democratic, that calls itself racist, that calls itself modern, that calls itself whatever. Not that I believe in any of these terms necessarily, but there has to be a baseline that you cannot cross that baseline. And but that's what AKP has been doing. There's no baseline. There's no threshold. They, there's no boundary. They have been doing really dirty politics and letting the crowd chant hang him was horrifying to hear. So these were the first two things that they did. And then we started having the news that there were attacks in Kurdish cities. Houses were being raided. People were being taken under custody. There has been so much violence. Pictures of people with broken noses, bleeding heads. So streets being terrorized by those big vehicles like with water cannons in them. I don't know what they're called. So these were the first things, these were the first impressions of the first days, unfortunately. So what do you think mid and long term? How does the whole process of the election, like for example the fact that everything was so tight and the outcome in the end affect Turkish leftists, oppressed communities in Turkey and revolutionary movements in that place? For the sake of this question, I will just say left for all that were oppressed. So the left has been under too much pressure already for two decades. Like in the first, maybe in the first term of Erdogan, things were a little more liberal because he was siding with the liberals and he had to put on this like liberal mask. But after 2006, things started to get worse and worse gradually. And especially after the Gezi protests for a decade now, because it was in 2013, the pressure on the left and especially on the Kurdish movement and the LGBTQI has been immense and it's just you know tripling and quadrupling at every corner and right now Erdogan has this gratification and validation that no matter what he does he still gets to be elected so this is the most dangerous weapon you can give to an autocrat as as him because he has now five years ahead I don't know how they are going to survive economically because the economy is devastated. We are basically, the state thresher is depleted. There is no state money right now and it's going to be a huge crisis where we are dependent on investors and foreign support. So I don't know how they're going to survive financially, but I'm pretty sure to have a fake understanding of power, they are going to be oppressing the left more because you have to create this like binary opposition to make yourself feel stronger. And if you don't have the economy and the freedoms to fortify that image, what are you going to do? You're going to attack who is in the opposition. So I believe the, um, the pressure on those who are left or who are in the opposition will maybe even quadruple. I can't even say like double because I mean, since the first night we have been having reading news that are just all about people being under custodies, people being attacked on the streets, people being afraid that they cannot speak freely anymore. People are shutting down their Twitter accounts. There's a huge censorship going on on Twitter. They are using this new law, misinformation law, whatever you say in, on Twitter, if it is not proven right and if it is caught on their filter, you might get punishment. Whereas they are doing and spreading misinformation each moment. So... Turkish politics are like quite dirty these days and it's been dirty for quite a while and I don't think it's going to be really easy on the left. There's too much pressure already 
and the people who were already in jail will not be released. That's something really saddening us because that's that was one of the things that we were looking forward to. All those prisoners, all those hostages, we call them hostages. We were so hoping that the oppositional leader could win and then maybe they will release those who were held hostage. But right now, there's no hope that all these people, all these beautiful minds who have been locked away to be released. And this is something heartbreaking. And not having all these people who are shaping the movements is also making the movements a little, you know, wobbly. And it's putting so many more other people in danger right now to speak up for their rights. And it's a little difficult to foresee how far they can go with those measures. Is there anything else you would like to say? Then please go ahead. Yeah, like there is something a little funny, I find it. Those who called Erdogan the first to celebrate him on the win were people from Hamas, Al-Qaeda, Taliban, Grey Wolves, the Emir of Qatar, and who else? Orban. And then comes EU Commission. And then comes Olaf Scholz. I find this really interesting. Maybe I can't answer to it with my own words, but I saw one tweet And the person was writing EU or uh, Olaf Scholz being so eager to call Erdogan so quickly means more deaths in the Mediterranean. I think this is something we should not forget about the elections and have to read it in Europe. Erdogan was being the gatekeeper for those refugees in Turkey, so they wouldn't be able to go to a European country. And right now we have millions of refugees, some of them undocumented, some of them are not given the status of a refugee, some of them are seen as guests, there is this like status of guest. So these people are suffering so much in the country, while Erdogan is getting the money from Europe and using it maybe for his like election campaigns and stuff. So this is going to mean more suffering for those who are trying to get an asylum in European countries. So I think this is something we should keep in mind. This is going to mean more unfortunate events in the in the Mediterranean. mi hermano y sin latima con grillo por la calle lo arrastraron sí. la carta dice el motivo que ha cometido Roberto haber apoyado el paro que ya se había resuelto si acaso esto es un motivo presa también voy sargento Solo quiere quita aprender más budukú mientras la tele grita terrorista. Nunca vamos a subir de estatus. Extranjero en la city, mi alma extraña igual Mabu. Un simple Mabu flight de un pobre huejón. Primero su esclavo y ahora su trabajador. Un simple Mabu flight de un pobre huejón. Primero su esclavo y ahora su trabajador. Mabu flight de. Yeah, hijo de un mal sistema que no quiere que luche. Mabu flight de. Yeah, yeah, discriminado por ser flight y también por ser mapuche. Mabu flight de.
que no tienen cara, sino brazos, que no tienen nombre, sino número, que no figuran en la historia universal, sino en la crónica roja de la prensa local. Los nadies que cuestan menos que la bala que los mata. On our final blog, the final straw radio from so-called Asheville, North Carolina, in the USA, is sharing part of an interview with Matthew Scott, a journalist with ACPC in Atlanta, to talk about recent developments with the struggle against Cop City, the building of a giant police training facility with a simulated cityscape for urban counterinsurgency, training for law enforcement from around the USA and around the world in a forest in Atlanta, Georgia. For this segment of Bad News, the final straw from so-called Asheville, North Carolina in the USA is sharing part of an interview with Matthew Scott, a journalist from ACPC in Atlanta, to talk about recent developments in the struggle against Cop City, the building of a giant police training facility with simulated cityscape for urban counterinsurgency training for law enforcement from around the USA and around the world in a forest in Atlanta, Georgia. You can hear the whole interview in our June 18th, 2023 episode, and you can learn more about Cop City at scenes.noblogs.org or read Matthew's work at atlpresscollective.com. Yeah, my name is Matt Scott. I am a journalist with the Atlanta Community Press Collective. So I am based in Atlanta, Georgia. My preferred pronouns are either he or they. Either one works interchangeably. Cop City is a $90 million public safety training center that is set to be built in an area of, of Atlanta called the South River Forest. This is the largest contiguous piece of forested land in Atlanta. It's one of the largest internal like city forested land pieces in the entire country. Essentially, uh, for the neighborhoods around the Cop City, it, it's where sort of flood protection takes place. Uh, obviously, it has a cooling effect. And of course, it has uh, a carbon capture effect. So this is a very important piece of forested land that is also attached to a river. It's called the South River. And there's an entrenchment creek that runs from this area of forest into the South River, which is one of the endangered uh, waterways. So there are a lot of environmental concerns all around this project. And so this is called Cop City because part of this facility will be essentially a police tactical training section that imitates real life. At this point, there's scheduled to be built a city block with a gas station, a nightclub, apartments, and a house that police can use to to simulate real life events. They would argue that it's to simulate active shooter events. More, more often than active shooter events, police are used to put down protest events, and that is also where this would be practiced. So that's how the Cop City name came about. The project started all the way back in, in 2016, but kind of fell off until 2021 when it was sort of brought about again by the Atlanta Police Foundation, where they said, you know, it will be built in this this area of land. And they kind of pitched it to city council and city council approved and passing this lease to build the facility. After the passage of the lease, people began to occupy the land. They became known as forest defenders. And so sort of towards the end of 2021, it was about December of 2021, they set up a, a permanent encampment that was broken down by police about a month later. So it was really from 
January of 2022 all the way until January of 2023, there was a permanent encampment uh, throughout. There were several sites throughout the forest where, where people were actively holding down the lands, building tree sits in order to stop the facility from being constructed to stop, you know, engineers from being able to come onto the site and, and, and lay down planning stakes and things like that. So they very effectively did halt construction for a significant period of time. In December of 2022, the police had a raid where they arrested, uh, six people and charged them with domestic terrorism charges. Uh, and then the, in January of 2023, there was another raid where they arrested seven people and they killed a protester. So at this point now, the opposition to the project is, is a pretty vast coalition from anarchists to environmentalists to, you know, regular old, uh, like soccer moms, essentially. And now with uh, a referendum campaign that just launched, that coalition continues to grow. It's expanded into sort of more electorally minded orgs and throughout the last year we've we've seen just this constant expansion in 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 the umbrella that is the stop cop city movement in late february there were conversations about the potential of of rico charges racketeering influenced corrupt organization charges against the defend the forest movement and it was actually the atlanta solidarity fund that that opened up those conversations they provided the evidence that these charges they believe were forthcoming and then they had a presentation with the Civil Liberties Defense Center to kind of explain what RICO charges were. And uh, we're going to kind of hold those RICO charges in our brain as we kind of continue on here. But they expected RICO charges to drop before the week of action, and then they never did. ACPC actually released documents from the Atlanta Police Foundation where they were insuring uh, or assuring, I should say, their board and contractors that that indictments would be coming against forest defenders to hopefully disrupt the movement. They, they were setting those out, you know, sort of in early February. Uh, the charges never came, but through conversations uh, or, or comments by prosecutors in the cases against the domestic terrorism defendants, they started to lay out this financial case and, and more and more indication that they were planning on on doing some sort of uh, financial crimes charge. The Atlanta Solidarity Fund organizers were, were kind of aware that this was likely to happen um, and, and had prepared some comment for it and uh, had prepared another bail fund, this time a, a national bail network to take over handling bail here in, in, in Atlanta uh, in the case of, you know, that these charges came down. So it was uh, May 31st, uh, early in the morning, uh, a police SWAT vehicle, an armored vehicle, and a SWAT team broke down the door of a house called the Teardown. And this is a house in a gentrifying neighborhood that is an anti-gentrification house. They've lived there for, I believe, something like a decade at this point, maybe even a little bit longer. Out of this house, they ran Atlanta's Food Not Bombs until COVID hit. They now run a uh, another nonprofit uh, called Food for Life that, that provides thousands of pounds of food free food each week. They also do a cop watch program. And of course, the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, the bail fund program. So a lot of things are, are run out of this house. And Atlanta Solidarity Fund predates the Cop City movement. It goes all the way back to 2016, where it was organized in response to anti-Confederate and anti-fascist um, demonstrations. They were arrested early that morning in their pajamas, taken to jail. And, you know, we're, we're, reading these warrants and these warrants are alleging that 
they are committing charity fraud through misuse of funds. And that misuse of funds or some of those misuse of funds that are cited as examples are reimbursements for gas, uh, reimbursements for COVID tests, reimbursements for, you know, just supplies in general, purchasing a cell phone as is would be needed when you're operating a bail fund. The, the charges were incredibly weak, but nevertheless, prosecutors brought them forward. Uh, and then when they were brought in front of a judge, even the judge was like, there, there, there's not much meat on the bones here. You're going to have to do a lot better work if you want these charges to, to stick or to hold up in court. So the judge granted, uh, these organizers a $15,000 bond, which, so there are 42 charges of domestic terrorism across 41 people. One person was charged twice stemming from two separate events. Of those 41 people, there are two people that are still being held. The person who has two charges just had their bail revoked from their first charge. So they are now uh, in DeKalb County Jail after you know violating their, their bail conditions. And then a uh, second individual, uh, Victor Puertas, was arrested on March 5th and, and charged with domestic terrorism and was released from DeKalb County Jail after 90 days. But then once he was released from DeKalb County Jail, he was picked up by ICE. He is a, a foreign national, but a, but a resident. So he has lived here for, I believe, something like a decade at this point. But he was taken by ICE and brought to Stort County ICE Detention Facility, which is another, you know, DeKalb County Jail where he was held for those 90 days is is one of the worst jails in the state. And Stort County Detention Center is is also you know, uh, pretty atrocious and, and kind of constantly under attack by, by civil rights, uh, watchdog groups for, for its conditions. So he's continuing to suffer pretty, pretty awful conditions for attending a, a music festival. And then other than that, there's, uh, another individual who is being held in, uh, a county sort of north of Atlanta called Bartow County under charges of felony stalking and intimidation of a police officer for passing out flyers. And these flyers said, you know, in your neighborhood, there is, uh, there's a killer and named the Georgia state police officers who, who killed Tortuguita. All of that information would be on the Atlanta Solidarity Fund's, uh, uh, social networks, uh, their Instagram account. At what point in the process is the actual construction of cop city and destruction of the forest right right there in in the south commons yeah so we are unfortunately in the second phase of construction so clear cutting is 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 over and we are moving into mass grading and you know clear cutting is of course environmentally devastating um but mass grading is is changing the contours of land permanently so we are we are having a, a large impact on the ecological structure of the South River Forest at this point. Uh, they are anticipating starting, you know, actual construction uh, in late August. Whether they are able to do so is going to depend on the referendum and potential injunctions or you know possible direct actions taken by actors down the line. You had mentioned that there is an upcoming week of action around the forest defense. Uh, are you aware of the details of it, of any of the like public events or um, where more information could be found, what days it's going to cross? So I, I know the dates uh, will be June 24th through July 1st. I know there is a kickoff event uh, on June 24th at 1 p.m. I do not believe the venue has been publicly announced. Uh, and then there will be another music festival on July 1st uh, at the end of the week of action. And 
the venue has not been announced for that either. A lot of this uh, week of action seems to be a lot quieter than, than past weeks of action, and we expect to find information uh, in terms of what is happening and where it's happening closer to the event time. Uh, that information will be available on the various Defend the Forest social uh, media accounts. Um, and then there is a, a calendar on defendtheatlantaforest.org that I believe will be updated uh, to include the events once they are, are made public. Poeta de tiernas rimas, vete a vivir a la selva y aprenderás muchas cosas del achero y sus miserias. Vive junto con el pueblo, no lo mires desde afuera, que lo primero es ser hombre y lo segundo poeta. De tanto mirar la luna, ya nada sabes mirar. Eres como un pobre ciego que no sabe a dónde va. Vete a mirar los mineros, los hombres en el trigal, y cántale a los que luchan por un pedazo de pan. Y cántale a los que luchan por un pedazo de pan. content like this, you can visit a-radio-network.org. This bad news episode has been put together by Asamblea Anarquista de Valparaíso in so-called Chile, South America. Su pistola. Yo también tengo hambre de matar. Pero a mí esos fierros no me gustan. Yo saco las uñas pa' pelear Y a mí que me disparen de frente Y que sea en la puerta de mi casa Porque yo me muero en tierra mía Y a mí de esta tierra no me sacan Y a mí que me disparen de frente Y que sea en la puerta de mi casa Porque yo me muero en tierra mía Y a mí de esta tierra no me sacan la semilla porque usted la trata de ilegal tenemos el power de la minga power y junta para alimentar y le hacemos fuerza a la semilla y porque usted la trata de ilegal tenemos el power de la minga power y junta para alimentar y a mí que me disparen de frente y que sea en la puerta de mi casa porque yo me muero en tierra mía y a mí de esta tierra no me sacan.